Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris, and I'm just so glad you're here. This podcast is designed to dig below the surface. We're going to talk about everything from life to love and pretty much everything in between. So go ahead and leave that Superman cape of having it all together at the door because life is freaking messy. Don't I know it. Now, not only are we going to be real, we're going to have some fun too, because Lord knows I will find any excuse to bring up Beyonce or the latest episode of The Bachelorette. So if you're a new friend, welcome. Make sure you're subscribed to the Refined Collective podcast on iTunes. And if you're an old friend, welcome back. And would you do me a quick favor? Hop on over to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and written review. I would be so grateful. Finally, if something stands out to you in this episode, go on and slide into my DMs on Instagram. I love hearing from you. It's at The Refined Woman. Now let's go ahead and get to it. A few years ago, I spoke at a conference here in Brooklyn and a girl named Ruthie Lindsay also took the stage. Now, I didn't really know anything about her story. I only knew her from Instagram and social media, and she always seemed like this bright ray of sunshine, this Southern girl with the with the type of Southern accent that, as a Texas girl, I wish I had. And I remember hearing her story when she spoke at this conference and being gutted by the pain and loss that she has experienced in her life and being so struck by the idea that you never know what someone is going through. You never know the pain someone has experienced and the journey of healing and growth that they are on. And also how limited of a story social media can tell. A little bit about her story. Her senior year of high school, she got in a terrible car accident and had less than a 5% chance of survival. They did not think she would walk again, maybe not even live past this moment, but she overcame the odds and even walked the stage at her senior graduation. Years go by, she goes to college, she gets married, and somewhere in her marriage, she wakes up with incredibly, insanely debilitating pain. Pain so severe that it took her out of her life and into her bed and on hard narcotic drugs for almost seven years. It got to the point where her marriage was falling apart, her faith was falling apart, she was distanced from her family and her very self, and she didn't know if she could survive the pain. Doctor after doctor after doctor did not know what was wrong until one doctor discovered there was a shadow on her x-rays. Essentially, the surgery her senior year of high school had been done wrong, and there was a wire, a metal wire, poking into her brain, causing this pain. It was a shock that she was even alive with this misstep, the mistake that the doctors had made. So she went through more surgeries, more drugs, and her story of pain is one that I haven't really heard of a person that has experienced so much physical pain in her life outside of Ruthie. And yet she has overcome. She is not without pain. 
you have to read her book to find out all of it. Um, but she is a person that has walked into healing in the midst of really, really, really dark moments of her life. And so I tell you this now because her story is so powerful. She literally wrote an entire book about it. It's called There I Am, Ruthie Lindsay, The Journey from Hopelessness to Healing. And we did not want to take up the entire episode talking about this healing process because you can read it in her book. And because we both felt like there were some really more important things that we wanted to talk about, like what does it mean to struggle with your faith? What does it mean to be a people pleaser? What does it mean to identify as a Christian in today's culture? And what do we do? How do we interact as an ally in the Black Lives Matter movement? How do we come to a place where we are committed to growth like crazy, no matter what, till the last breath of our lives? So I am grateful that Ruthie was totally down to shift the conversation away from her personal story to the personal, just life story in general and what it means to be a human. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I just adore Ruthie. Even after this conversation, adore her even more. And I hope you go out and buy her book, There I Am, because as you're about to hear when I interview her, I totally fangirl on her. I read the book in two days and wept, cried, and everything in between. I just, it's one of the best books I've read in a long time. And so I just feel so tickled that I got to talk with her. So let's go ahead and get to it. Today, we have such a special guest on, Ruthie Lindsay. She just wrote an incredible memoir called There I Am. I knew about her story from Instagram and seeing her speak at a conference, but getting to read it in book form was super powerful. And I basically stalked her on Instagram until I got her on the podcast. <laughs> so, hi, Ruthie. Hi, sister. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I'm really so grateful to get to share the space with you today. I'm so appreciative. And your encouragement has just been so affirming and so intentional and so kind. So, thank you. Oh, well, I am just so, so excited to be chatting with you. I learned about you through my old roommate, Jedediah Jenkins, and your beautiful friendship and love affair on Instagram. I was like, wait, who is this Ruthie girl? And why is she attached at the hip with my friend Jed? And then I was like, I just love you guys. Like, I I don't know you, but I'm like, Jed is one of those like magical people that you meet and you're just like instantly heart connected. And so I just felt like, I love you, even though I don't know you. Oh my gosh, that is so precious. Well, any friend of my soulmate is mine. So I am so excited to know you too. Yeah, it's so fun. And I, I read your book. Well, first of all, I'm in the process of writing my own book and Ooh. was kind of going through... I don't, I don't know how your book cover experience was, but my book cover experience all has been a little bit of a nightmare, a lot of fighting. It's my first book. I like, I'm like, what hill do I want to die on? I don't know. But I saw your cover and like, I felt something in my soul, like the, the drawing of you, the font. I just, I sent it to my team and my editors. And I was like, I feel something 
I just want to read this book because of this cover. I feel like it hit me in the gut. I just wanted to hear like, what was that process like for you? Was it the cover you wanted? Did you have to fight for it? Well, thank you. First off, that is the exact hope and um, the intention that went in behind it. And um, yes, I had this vision. So the second I got my book deal, I literally reached out to my girlfriend, Emily Leonard, who's my favorite watercolor artist in the world, but happened to live in my neighborhood in East Nashville, Tennessee. Not anymore. She's in Santa Fe now, but I mean, like the most expensive artwork I've ever bought is hers. Like I, I'm so in love with her work. I have two sketches of hers on my body that I had had her to do. Um, Anyway, I reached out to her and asked her and then told my (laughs) publisher, whoa, 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 we have an agency. Like we have a whole art department. This is not how we do this. And I'm like, well, you'll see. So I basically put together a, a whole thing. I like gave them the vision that I had. I'm like, you just have to trust me. This is the work that I do. Like this, mm. I don't know shit about writing a book, but I design. <laughs> that is one thing I know. So yes. just, you have to trust me. So I sent them a vision board. I sent them her work. And once they saw that, they trusted me, you know? So I kind of did the back end work and I gave them color palette. I mean, I literally laid it out. I'm like, this is what it is. This is the artist. Here's the vibe. Here's the whatever. And they went for it after they saw that. They were very resistant until they saw that. And she delivered on a level that like... And you know, it was so beautiful. She's such a channel. And that's part of why her work is so... She is so connected to the divine. And she just... She's a channel. She just flows. Mm. And I did not actually ask her to do it with my eyes closed. And she took my portrait in my backyard and she said, you know, I asked you what you wanted people to feel when they read your book. And she said, what I noticed about you is every time you are connecting to spirit, you close your eyes and you put your hand on your heart when you're speaking that like soulful higher consciousness place. And that's, that's your essence. And she was like, you know, and I just kind of took a leap here. She didn't ask me, she just did it. And also why it felt so profound is because there I am is the idea of coming home to ourselves and finding who we truly are within, not in reflection of what other people tell us we are and what culture tells us we are and what the patriarchy tells Mm -hmm. us we are the church and all the things, family, it's going within to that divinity that lives within all of this. And that has been found for me in the quiet spaces, going deep within through meditation, being in nature. And that's, that's not looking out that's going in, you know? So yes, I mean, I loved it on a level. I can't even describe. I'm like, this is my favorite. (laughs) It's like, I I just, which you shouldn't say probably about your own thing, but I'm like, I didn't do it. She did it. And it's just my favorite thing ever. I love it so much. Girl, you should say it and own it and receive it because (laughs) I mean, I, yeah, like, I I was like, is it weird if I frame this and put this in my house? Like, and even just the title, There I Am, like, I've seen you speak before and you said that when you were talking and that is just, it's one of those phrases that like touches my soul. Cause I feel like, mm-hmm. I mean, I just look over, I've been, I look in my life in New York. I've been in New York for seven years before that I was in Southern California for years. And I look at my early twenties where, you know, those were some of the best years of my life. I was 
dirt broke, like, you know, idealistic, like living out of van, doing advocacy work, and then trying to be a photographer and not knowing how I was going to pay my rent. And just, I felt like, oh, this is me, this is me. And I, what I can say looking back at that is like, I thought so much that I was me, but really I was like trying on these different versions of me, whether it was like, I went through a very painful preppy (laughs) season where it was just like, I'm supposed to be preppy. Like I'm from the South. Like this is cool. This is in, this is who I am. And I feel like I'm turning 35 in a couple of weeks and I'm just finally getting to a place. It's like, I'm in this forest, like moving branches. And I'm like, wait, wait. I think, I think she's around here somewhere. I think, I think I'm seeing me for the first time, even though back then it felt like I was, but it was also with a ton of striving. I don't know if that makes sense. Absolutely. 100%. I think that's the earth school experience, right? (laughs) People that haven't, I mean, that's part of it. Yes. 100%. But that's so beautiful. Well, I love the journey that you're on. So I think something that was really interesting to me in your book and in your story is, you know, you grew up in the South. I grew up in the South and I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but Christianity was sort of like the air you breathed. And Mm -hmm. so it's almost like uh, Kierkegaard says, calls it like crowd Christianity, like where everyone's a Christian, like no one's really a Christian. And you talk about growing up in the South, growing up in church culture, and then you're a camp counselor. And then later on, you're at staff at a church. Mm -hmm. But internally, it sounded like you were like, I don't even know if I believe this whole thing. Um, So I would just love to hear more about that and what that was like. Absolutely. I grew up very similarly to you. It was very much church culture. I mean, we didn't read the Bible in my home. It wasn't, I went to an Episcopal church that, you know, I never saw a Bible be open. I saw the book of common prayer, you know, the few times we went um, a month and, um, but I was so deathly afraid of getting in trouble. Like I had this fear of God and my dad, I, my older brother got in so much trouble growing up. And so I was like, I don't want to do any of that. I am going to like the high road. I'm not going to do anything that could, I mean, I just was a pleaser to a T. I wanted the attention and affection and adoration of people outside of me. And that looked like being a quote unquote good girl. And so my friends were crazy and wild. And I was me and one other friend were the only ones of my whole group of friends that like didn't drink and didn't smoke and didn't have sex. And then I started, it was just like very much a morality thing. It wasn't in the honor, you know, to honor God by mm-hmm. any. And, but then I started being, especially as I was older, like junior and senior, I was really respected for it. And mm-hmm. I found that was, oh my gosh, that gave me so much energy because again, I found so much value and worth in what anyone outside of me thought of. And getting that validation was just, that was fuel. And so then when I got to college, I met Christians and like, you know, really in the church, you know, Christians. And I was like, oh, that must be what I am. They're not drinking, smoking or having sex and they smile a lot and are really sweet and kind and, you know, show up and want to like be loving. So that must be what I am. So, oh, I'm a Christian. Got it. But I didn't get the whole Jesus thing. Like I said, I did. Um, it was more of a vicariously. Like I would 
pick my friend Katie's brain and hear her experience, like her spiritual experiences. And I'm like, the fuck are you talking about? Like, I had no, it was all, even the way I would share, it was like through the lens of someone else's experience. It never landed for me. And I think so much of that was, I was very disassociated. A lot of it's from early childhood trauma that I put up these walls that I just, I did not know how to connect with anything outside of the physical. So it was, there was a disconnect, but I didn't even know how to, I just thought that's how it was. I think in some ways, I mean, I I was probably pretty disingenuous about a lot of things. So this was just an extension of that. It was like my you know, and cause I didn't know how to process hard things. I'm like, I was taught, you know, you show up, you be pretty, you smile and you be pleasant. Like that is, that is number one, you be pleasant, you be adored, you be kind, but I didn't know how to process hard things. I didn't know how to talk about hard things. I wasn't allowed to show anger or hurt or rage or disappointment. You know, those things were not becoming of a young Christian sweet girl, you know? And so I pushed all that stuff down. And so this was just more of an extension of that. And then I would say, um, you know, the church that I ended up joining was very much a, you know, now it's beautiful now being able to look back and like, they were just trying to protect me. That was, that was based in so much fear, but it was led by a lot of white men. (laughs) There was patriarchy involved. It was, you know, women couldn't teach. Mm-hmm. Gay was sinful and wrong. Um, uh, the flesh was sinful above all else. The heart is deceitful. Um, we are broken, depraved wretches. And so we need Jesus. And I absorbed those words as truth. I believed them. And I thought that that's, you know, this is what God says because this white preacher is telling me that's what God says. And I don't understand the Bible. So I'm gonna have to understand what he has to say, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I took that as truth. And as I, my, you know, life happens and worlds implode and mine sure as hell did in my twenties, everything imploded and everything that I had fit in this perfect little black and white box that I'd been taught were going to keep me safe. And, you know, I, it imploded and none of it fit. And it's like, whoa, I did all these things and I've been living this quote unquote good life. And my life is in shambles. And here I am. I've been living in my bed for seven years from debilitating chronic pain. And my dad has died and all these horrible, tragic, traumatic things happened. And I was like, F that. I don't, I felt so abandoned by this God that I've been taught about, this white Jesus that I've been taught, you know, that had all these rules that I'd followed. And and for me, that's where deconstruction happened. And I think so often Richard Rohr talks about order, disorder, reorder. You know, I've been taught in this ordered black and white box and then disorder when my world imploded and I just, I threw it all out. I'm like, I don't want anything to do with that God, if this is like, if this is supposed to be what a good God is about, like F that I threw the baby out with the bathwater. Cause I felt so abandoned because my limiting view, this such a limiting view of who God was and it didn't fit anymore. Cause the box that I've been given all the experiences I was having didn't fit in that box. And so I was like, I don't want anything to do with that. And and that was an important part of my journey. You can't move to reorder, like Richard Rohr says, unless you've gone, you can't bypass order and disorder. You mm-hmm. can't 
and consciousness and awakening and enlightening enlightenment and coming home to ourselves. That's all, all the painful things, all the traumatic things are crucial ingredients to get there. You can't bypass it. And so I can look back now and think about the times I felt so abandoned. I'm like, Mm. Oh gosh, Oh, I was so surrounded and I was Mm. so old and I was so loved and I was never, I've never, ever, ever been left alone. Like we are surrounded by light workers and the universe that lit. I mean, that divinity that lives within me, (laughs) I can separate myself from that. Nothing I can do can separate. I can, trauma can go on top of it and it can block it where you don't think it's there, but it's always, always with us. And that, that journey of coming home to myself, which is essentially coming home to the divine universe that lives within me and within every other living thing on planet earth has been the most beautiful coming home of anything that I've experienced in this life. You may or may not know now, but I am writing a book. It's called Sexless in the City, a sometimes sassy, sometimes painful, always honest look at dating, desire, and sex. It's coming out in April of 2021, which is going to be here before we know it. For most of my life, it was easy for me not to have sex, but that was because my dating life looked more like the Sahara Desert than anything else. All of that changed when I moved to New York City. Many of the Christians I met were living with their boyfriends and having casual sex, and I began to ask if saving yourself for marriage was still a thing, or was it just some legalistic, antiquated Christian norm that was no longer relevant? As I started to dive into a journey of unpacking that question, I began to ask more questions. What does the Bible really say, if anything, about sex? What are we supposed to do as single people with our sexual desire? And practically speaking, what does dating look like in today's culture? And finally, what if we never get married? Then what? What are we supposed to do with our lives then? I talk about all of these things in my book, Sexless in the City, and I would love to keep you up to date on all things book-related, from book tour to joining my book launch team to special in-person events, God willing. So go ahead and go to bit.ly slash trw dash book so you can sign up to get all the updates you want and need about sexless in the city. First of all, thank you just for being so honest. Mm -hmm. I love that. I appreciate that. Two things came to mind. One of them was, so, you know, it sounds like your whole life, you, it's like the people pleaser, which I totally get. I'm a number three on the Enneagram. And when I figured that out, I literally cried. I was like, I'm a politician. I don't, I'm, I just want everyone to like me. Who do you want me to be? Um, and so I just resonate. I'm like, oh my gosh, let me, well, the funny thing is I did this whole eight hour workshop on Enneagram. And when it came, I, I, I ended the day and I could not figure out what number I was. And on number three, I was taking notes and I wrote my ex's name in all capital letters and was like, he's a chameleon. <laughs> he's a, he's such a fake. Um, and then 
six months later, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm a three. And I couldn't figure that out because I'm just trying to be everything for all people. And I hate in him what I hate in myself. Oh Um, my God, you're amazing. Oh, just, you know, just a wonderful little spiral there. Um, (laughs) But one thing that I was wondering with your experience is as a person who was like, oh, I want to do this right. Whether that's, I want to please you. I want to please my parents. My brother was the rebel. I want to be the good one. Now I want to be the good girl, the good Christian girl. And you talk about like that moment of feeling abandoned by God and then being like, well, screw the whole thing. But were you ever afraid of like, what were Christians going to think of you? Yeah. Would that people pleasing part of you like ever come out as, as you were like, well, I want to throw this whole thing out. Was that ever like, were you ever like, I can't do that because then what are all these people going to think? That was definitely in me for sure. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, when I started stepping away again, I was living in my bed. I was on every narcotic under the sun and literally every drug. Like I was on the highest level of fentanyl patch, hydrocodone, morphine. I mean, just name it. Like I was on that drug and I was numbing myself so much that all I thought about was my pain. That's all I thought about. I didn't have a whole lot of space (laughs) to think about what other Christians might be thinking of me. It's just, I was so in the depths of darkness that It just, I didn't have a ton of room to even consider. All I thought about was me and my pain. That was what I thought about at that time. And it was really in my re-immersion when I, after I had my second, my largest nervous breakdown and I weaned myself off of all the drugs and I started choosing to live life again, I remember feeling a bit more fear because I was vocal for the first time. I remember sitting down with my closest friends and be like, I just don't believe this. And, you know, because I loved them so much, I didn't want to hurt them, (laughs) you know, but I think it was a slow, it wasn't like there was just this night and day overnight thing. It was a slow drip. And then, you know, I, I think I was also fortunate enough. I, I think my one truest spiritual gift is just collecting the most beautiful souls you could ever imagine. Like truly, I think that is my one truest, <laughs> truest spiritual gift. And I was lucky and blessed and fortunate enough to be surrounded by such unconditional love and support that I wasn't ashamed. I mean, I don't know what people outside, I'm sure there are people who are like, pray for her, <laughs> dear God. And I'm sure there still still are. And I'm like, I would love your prayers. Thank you. I'm doing great. But I, I felt so held and loved. And my my closest friends that love Jesus, which I am such a fan of Jesus. I love Jesus. I not the Jesus I was taught about, but like I believe Christ and Christ consciousness. I mean, that is such a huge part of my belief system and my practice and who I bring in to walk with me in my day in, day out life. Just the the white, blue eyed Jesus that I was taught about, like it didn't that that box isn't relevant to me anymore. And but the people surrounding me were just so incredible. And they walked with me. They walked with me through the order stage. They walked with me through the disorder stage. And even now when, you know, I have friends that are deep in their evangelical Christian life. And I mean, some of this, 
I, I'm going to really try hard not to cuss here. <laughs> that comes out of my mouth. I'm like, two years ago, I would have wanted to punt me to the moon. <laughs> you have lost your mind. I mean, it's woo-woo on a level you can't even imagine. And it was so real and true and beautiful and expansive and inclusive and loving. And I feel more connected to the divine than ever since I was in the in-between, like before I came, I have never felt so connected in the unity of everything and connected to humans, not humans that think like me, like all humans and this plant that I'm looking at and this dog that I found in the woods a month and a half ago, like we are all so connected and that, that they, they support me and love me in that, you know? And I think because I mean, they talk about it in the Bible. It's like, you'll recognize this by our fruit. And if I'm living a wholehearted, loving, inclusive, expansive life, like I don't get questioned a whole lot, <laughs> even though it's like really woo-woo and cuckoo to like, you know, people like that's fine. I am so okay with that. And if people are uncomfortable about comfortable with it. It's actually like none of my business. That's, that's okay. Cause we don't see the world as it is. We see it as we are. And when I'm judgmental, it's because I'm really judgmental of myself first. And that's I'm right. And so I, I try not to take that kind of stuff personally. And the people closest to me support me so mm. wholeheartedly. And now we're dabbling in this stuff that like, they're like, who am I? I'm like, I know. who <laughs> It's the most beautiful, precious, just, I am just so in love with it. And I'm in love with my friends and I'm in love with this divinity that lives within all of us. And I think my work on this planet, why I came here is to go through all these painful things and to ultimately those painful, traumatic, heartbreaking things becoming the invitation and the entry points for me to actually come home to myself and to do this self-healing work that we're all so deserving of, all of us, and then to go out into the world and be a mirror and a safe container of this divinity and love and hope and healing that is within everyone. Like this is not unique to me. This is for all of us. And I think that is what the world needs. We need self healers that that's not selfish. That's the most loving thing you can do is go in, do the healing work on yourself and then walk out into the world and be a mirror. Like I can't fix or change anyone, but I can be a mirror of what is true and expansive and inclusive and loving for everyone. And that's that, that's our journey, you know? And even like when I hear you say that, I think of things like scripture, Old Testament, or I'm sorry, New Testament, Jesus saying, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Yes. And I, I feel like I grew up with this narrative that I'm a piece of crap. Yes. I am unworthy. Like I am broken without Jesus. And I love Jesus. I would still consider myself a Christian and I read my Bible. And I I think in the last, honestly, since when I, I, when I became a Christian, when I was 16 years old, I didn't understand the whole thing. I was like, wait, all I knew was the Bible that I read. I've always been the person that's like, well, um, w- w- wait a second. Um, there's this elephant in the room because 
why are all the women in this church not allowed on the stage? And why are they all mousy and quiet in the background? But then I read about like Queen Esther and she like ended a genocide and Ruth proposed to this guy by sneaking into his bedroom at night. And Proverbs 31 is this progressive woman who is respected in the city and who has a voice and who is concerned about justice and as a great leader. And then, wow, the early church is funded by entrepreneurial women and women like Lydia, who was like a business owner, was one of the early church founders. I just felt really confused. But I thought I must be wrong because one of the narratives I grew up experiencing through my family story was like, I'm crazy. And I can't trust myself because I say, oh, well, hey, my family story and people who listen to this know this, like drama, infidelity, addictions. And I'd be like, um, addiction is bad and it's hurting our family. And it was like, oh, you're dramatic. You're, you know, let's put that under the rug. Like, let's keep the peace. Yeah. And so I felt so confused and it's only been within the last like six, seven years as I've kind of journey- given myself the permission to get to know God and been like, okay, like just because I'm questioning these things that were given to me doesn't mean I'm like, throw the whole thing out. It just means that I am questioning things. And if God is real and I think God is real, mm-hmm. then God is not going to be threatened by my doubts or my searching or my questions or like you're saying, deconstructing. I would say welcomes it. I would I would go so far to say he welcomes. She welcomes it. Mm. You know? Cause like don't just take everything that these preachers have given to you. Like go within. Go within. That everything is about calling us home. And when you go within, like I I love reading words from a book and I'm like, oh, say those exact same things because they're not true for me. They're just truth. You know, and when you go in and you go to that deep place of divinity that lives, that can't be damaged, that can't be hurt, that was never broken, broken, effed up things happen to you. You were never broken, period, story. There's no such thing as original sin in the Bible. It's never spoken of. It's never spoken of. Those words are not in the Bible. You are so good and worthy and inherently divinely needed on this planet. You have a medicine that no one else here can give but you. And that all comes from going within. And I would say, God, the universe, whatever you call your higher power, ask that's what's asked of you to go within and to question what's been handed to us and to really dig in because our inner knowing knows. So let me ask you a question. Would you consider, like if someone was like, so Ruthie, are you a Christian? <laughs> what do you say to that? I don't. I mean, I I would say, I wish you could see my shrug, my shrug, shrug. <laughs> I'm like, I don't need to be, I, I feel like even trying to define God in the universe is so, our little English language is just too limiting. And so I'm so okay with, not having a definition for what I am. Do I think Jesus is the most, I am so in love with Christ consciousness. Like I'm a huge believer in Richard Rohr's teachings. I'm a huge believer in Ram Dass. I love studying Buddhism. I love, I I believe there's a universal love, which I remember, I remember 
being in college and even right out of college and being like, Oh my God, that Oprah woo woo stuff. Like go pray for that person that's talking about that universal love. Like, no, Jesus is the way we need to pray for them in Bible study. And now I'm like, it's the truest thing I've ever known. And so people can call me and name you whatever they want. I don't know. And I'm so great with that. I'm so, and I have friends that love Jesus and we are so in love with each other. It's so beautiful. And I have friends that are atheists and I have friends that are agnostics and I have friends that universalists and I have friends that are like me that are like, love is love is love is love. I don't know. And I just, I mean, maybe that makes me a universalist. I don't know. And I feel great about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so incredibly great about that. It's the same way that I struggle in saying, you know, I am a speaker, I'm an author, I am a podcast host. Cause I'm like, that's just my doing self. That's not actually who I am. Who I am is loving awareness. My soul, my essence is love and light as is every other humans. But I get so bogged down by my doing self. And I want to, I want to, my ego wants to say that's who I am. And it's just, it has nothing to do with our essence, with our inherent worthiness and value. And I feel like that's kind of the same thing. There's no, there's no definition and it doesn't matter. (laughs) You know, I think that's so, I just, I love hearing your story. I love hearing where you're at and, and I love hearing the freedom in your voice of like being okay with, you know what? I just, I'm not going to define this. And I think that is a hard place to get to, or let's say it, it, perhaps it's a difficult place to get to if you really care about what other people think of you or getting things wrong or, um, like wanting to be right. And so I just acknowledge that just the freedom I hear in your voice. And I think something that I've thought about just in the last, gosh, I guess now decade, which makes me feel old, um, <laughs> you know, in the last decade, <laughs> Um, but I just, I feel like when I left Texas and moved to California and I worked for invisible children, I lived in a house of 50 people that were all different than me. Like it was like one of the most colorful experiences of my life. And then moving to New York city where it's like this just gumbo of you are just collided with culture at every single every single moment of your day, you're on the subway next to a homeless person, a Hasidic Jewish man, a billionaire, and like every single ethnicity. And I think what I, what I came to years ago was I was like, I just want to like, I just want to live a life that is like Jesus and Mm -hmm. people who did not feel safe in the religious institutions loved to be around Jesus. They, women love to be around Jesus. The ostracized in society love to be around Jesus. And Jesus was not afraid about what the religious elite thought of him. And I'm like, I just want to be like that. <laughs> like, I just want to love people without an agenda. And I, I, if my life doesn't reflect that, if my life is just like same, 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 then I my life actually looks like the religious elite who were in charge of murdering Jesus. Yeah. It doesn't look like the life of Jesus. And so I I feel like that's something that I constantly go back to. 
I love that, sister. Oh, your heart is so beautiful. <laughs> it's so beautiful. And I, like I said, I love this journey you're on. This is, this is the work and you're doing it. You know how they say it takes a village to raise kids? Well, the Refined Collective is kind of my kid. It's my little baby. And it takes a village. And I officially want to invite you to be a part of my village. There are a lot of hard costs each month from software and subscription services to my team who edit and produce episodes to licensing music and all the logistics for the Refined Collective. And I would love to invite you to join our Patreon community. Patreon is an incredible platform that helps listeners financially support their favorite podcasts. You can support TRC for as little as $5 a month. And we made a bunch of fun different tiers that are jam-packed with free goodies and VIP access to our newest content. And you'll be notified before anyone else about upcoming live events. I'll also be going to you first to find out what questions you want answered and what topics you want covered moving forward on the podcast. So in the midst of a wild year, I want to invite you to link arms with my team and sharing some of the load and helping make the Refined Collective the best it can possibly be. So if you want to learn more or sign up today, head on over to patreon.com slash the Refined Collective. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Refined Collective. I feel like our healing journeys, our awakening journeys is way more of an unlearning and a remembering it's a uncovering what's always been there. We don't need to try to become someone that we're not. It's a remembering who we've always been. And I think that journey for me is realizing, you know, like I said before, I was like, you were taught, I was told I was this broken, depraved wretch. And I took those words in as law truth. And that unlearning of remembering that, oh, there's so much that's so right with me, not what's wrong with me. And finding this compassionate tenderness for myself and falling in love with myself. Like I can truly tell you, I mean, listen, I I will be on this journey forever. And I have moments where I'll hear these limiting stories and I'm like, hello, ma'am, who are you? But like, I was really fallen in love with myself where I was queen. I mean, I wanted to die. I wanted to, I hated myself. The amount of shame that I have experienced in this life, the amount of just thinking everyone's lives would be so much better if I did not exist. Mm. The amount of self-loathing and self-hatred. And I'm telling you, I took those words that I was a broken, depraved wretch as law. And unlearning and remembering and remembering that my body was never broken. My body that is so beautiful and has been holding me and loving me. This body that like, because I was in such debilitating chronic pain, I thought was the source of all of my pain. (laughs) And I thought it hated me and I called it an it. And now I'm like, this beautiful body, she has been loving me and holding me and encasing my soul (laughs) within me and has just been longing to heal and has been calling me home to myself to heal. Like that unlearning that, that my flesh is not simple, that my heart is not deceitful, but that opposite is true. It's so, she is so wise. Our hearts are so pure and so beautiful. And just ultimately, again, 
calling us home. And this is the work that we are all so deserving of. And that's what's going to change the world. When we do that and you remember the unity and the connection to everything and you re-embody yourself and you remember the oneness of everything, Mm -hmm. I am not going to look at my black brother or sister and see them as other. Mm -hmm. When you're embodied and you are connected to source energy and the connectivity and the consciousness of all things, I'm not able to look at you as other. It's just, it's goes, it's so counterintuitive to our beingness. And I think that's why this inner work is so crucial because laws don't change that. Like the 13th amendment changed a long, that was passed a long time ago. And that didn't change people's hearts. Mm. That did not make people look at, you know, black indigenous people of color as equals. It just didn't because it doesn't change your heart going inward, doing this unlearning. That's what changes our hearts. That's what reminds us of the connectivity and the like, and until everyone is seen as equal, our work isn't done. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Period. And even as you're, as you're talking, I, of course, all I can hear in my head is Black Lives Matters. Yeah. And just the idea of, I think what I am hearing and what you're saying is before I can really love or see another person, I have to be able to love and see myself and accept myself. And and you said it earlier. Jesus said it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And the depth that you fall in love with yourself is the depths and the well that that offspring, that abundance is the way that you can show up in the world and everything, everything, not just, I mean, I literally <laughs> earlier, this big old spider was like crawling on the window. And I was like, every part of me wants to kill it. But I'm like, no, we are, I'm going to carry it outside. And like, you know, it changes you. I mean, that sounds so woo-woo and so cheesy, but it just, it does, it changes. I feel like everything in, in my life right now is I want to learn about what is it like to be a black person in America. I want to learn about the history of our country. Um, I had no idea until recently that the, the, there was a loophole in the 13th Amendment that declared people free from slavery, except if they were a criminal. And I'm humbled at how much I have not known. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about as we talk about, like, even just like your own personal healing journey through trauma, like, what does it mean to make a step towards healing the systemic racism in our country? And I know that like, this is something like near and dear to your heart. So I just love to know what you think. Gosh, yes. Thank you for um, acknowledging that and bringing that up because it, it's, it's been so interesting. People <laughs> have been like asking me, my book came out in April. They're like, how's your book going? I'm like, I have no idea. I love well, I made the choice before it came out to not find out numbers or anything. I told my team, like, don't tell me. But what's been so interesting is like after, you know, obviously none of this is new, but the world has been confronted and we as white people have been confronted in a new way that's so important right now to the systemic racism that has been going on for the last 400 years in this country with George Floyd and all of these horrible murders that have happened. And ever since then, I'm like, I have not thought about this book. I could literally, who cares? Who 
cares? Because this is just, I have been complicit. I have been in, you know, and I think what's so interesting is the last five, but really three years, I've really worked to be, I wanted to be an ally. I've wanted to be an anti-racist white person. And like the last three men that I've dated have been black men. And that's been something that's been near and dear to my heart. And still I had no idea how much implicit bias has lived within me. How much, because I grew up in South Louisiana, my dances were segregated. I, I spent the night at plantations. Like that was just so normal. I grew up working at the Audubon pilgrimage and like giving tours of pilgrimage of plantations, but nowhere on this journey was anyone talking about the slaves. No one talked about it. I was taught in the history books about Christopher Columbus. I didn't know anything about the 13th Amendment. I did not know about the history of my town that was built on the back of Black men and women's backs. Like, I did not know. And this unlearning, this reckoning has been the most important, crucial I think it's the most important work that any of us can be doing right now. And, you know, I, I have so far to go. I have so much to unlearn. I have so much work to do. There's so much more that I want to and can be and should be and, um, and like completely committed to doing with my work. I mean, the work that I used to do is just not happening right now. And so this is like, it's this beautiful reckoning time. I'm like, I'm getting to reimagine every part of what I'm doing Mm. forward. And this feels like really foundational moving forward for like, I have a few different projects that I'm really, really excited to eventually share um, that I'm building and creating with the idea of like, how can I, and how can we as white people step aside and, um, really elevate and include and be ally, be true, true allies, not by just Instagram posts or going dark. And, you know, and I am all of the things I'm saying, I'm like, I'm preaching to myself because I have failed miserably, miserably in so many ways up to two years ago, the amount, the amount of, you know, quote unquote, influencer trips and, you know, retreats and things that I would show up at. And there was either none or like, ah, Mm. black person at these things. I mean, I was, I was complicit. I was a part of that and I might not have organized it, but I was very much, I wasn't calling it out. I wasn't making it a difference. And you know, Maya Angelou says, when you know better, you do better. And I, I just can't be a part of that anymore. And I'm really excited about this fall creating something that <laughs> I, I can't talk about it quite yet, but something that it just feels so near and dear to my heart of a way to open up these spaces when spaces can be opened up again, where it's, I I will not, and I haven't been a part of like a panel or a speaking thing where it's just white people in a long time. And, but I want to make a difference in the room. Whereas like healing modalities, um, counseling, um, healing retreats in any shape, any shape or form should not be a privilege. It should not be a room filled with white people. Like period to be in a black body in America is 
traumatic, (laughs) period, end of story. So what can we do to help aid in this healing journey? And I just, I don't know, I feel... I feel a lot of conviction. I feel a lot of heartbreak for how I have been, um, I've, I've been ignorant to, and I, I just, I feel a fire. I feel a fire in me to do better. I want to be better. And my black brothers and sisters, they make me better. And, you know, it's interesting. We were talking about this before you got on. There's a, um, a man that I, I've seen each other off and on for about two years now. And he was just visiting me this week and he is, um, this beautiful, tall black man. And for him to, to vicariously in a way that I will never, ever, ever comprehend in this white privileged body of mine, to see the fear that he has to experience for himself and his son, just walking in public. Like we've been outside, one time I was leaving, I mean, this happened actually more than once, but I'm like leaving his apartment and it was nighttime. He, we called an Uber. I called an Uber. Uber pulls up. He goes out for like, it's, you know, nighttime in New York to like wave them down two different times. The taxi, the Uber just turns around when they see him and drives him. two different times. I mean, that's the tiniest example. It's shit like this all the time, but I'm just like, I've never in my life experienced that. I don't even, what is that? Because he's this beautiful, tall black man. You're scared of him to let him be, you know? And it's like, that is, that's the air we breathe in America. That is what I was taught. I was taught to be afraid of black men. I was taught that. I remember when black men would walk by, I would lock my doors. What is that? Hello? Like I was taught, I mean, again, my dances were segregated. When I started like noticing, I started going to the black dance on campus that my black friends embraced me on a level I can't even describe you. And when I started bringing my black friends to the dance off campus, I became enemy number one. I mean, the patriarchy does not fly that way. Like I was called every name under the sun. And at the time as a 16 year old girl, The way it was set up was to put us down, to shut us up. And, and it did. And I, because I cared so much more of what other people thought of me, the idea that I was being called these names and that these grownups that I was taught to respect and, you know, elders are always right. I felt so heartbroken and so saddened by that, that that overshadowed in all ways how my black brothers and sisters must have felt being turned away from parties, from dances because of the color of their skin. And I cared so much more about my fragile little ego than I did about what their day in, day out existence was. And you know what? They still showed up and loved me and have embraced me and showed me more grace and forgiven me. And just then I, I can put into words, like I, it blows my mind the grace and the love and the embrace that I have been given and shown by my brothers and sisters. And it's the least, it's the least that I can do. It's the least that I can do that. I can spend a few hours a day trying to be better. Like the least, this is their day in day out and inherited trauma 
<laughs> you know, those eggs that live within that woman that that lived within her great grandmother who was a slave. Like that, this is inherited trauma. And then to have their present day trauma, it's just, I, I can do better. I can do better. It's the least I can do. I mean, I think that's such a good way to put it is I can do better. I had such a painful conversation with a person in my life that I really love recently about race. And my kind of like my final plea was like, is it possible? Is it in the realm of possibility that another human being outside of myself could have a different experience than I did in life? And if that's possible, then I want to know about it. If it's possible that something about what I've done, said, or not done, or not said, could have contributed to the pain of another person, I want to know about that. And I don't want to do that again. And so is it possible? I just, like, to me, it goes back to possibility. Mm -hmm. Is it possible that another human outside of my experience could have a different experience? Just like growing up, I'm one of six kids. We all grew up in the same home and the same dysfunction. And we all, it's like you ask all of us and it's like we had six different lives. Oh my God. So is it possible, is it possible that a person of color, a black person, an indigenous person in our country could have a different experience than mine as a white woman? I think it's possible. So instead of being defensive about that, what if I just chose to say, you know what? I want to learn about this. Yeah. I want to grow. Yes. Mm. Yes. Absolutely. Well, girl, I just feel like I could just chat with you till, I don't know, the cows come home. What's the phrase? (laughs) Um, But I just have so enjoyed chatting with you and, um, Just in closing, I would love, and I love that you're not looking at your book numbers, first of all, like, (laughs) wow, I'm like such a numbers person and I'm inspired by that. Um, And would just love for you to share with people how they can follow along with your journey and all those fun things. First off, before I even go there, I just want to acknowledge you and the work that you're doing and what you're putting into the world is just, it's so beautiful. And I really um, feel honored and grateful and so deeply appreciative that you would just share in this space with me today and let me be a part of this. And I'm just really, really grateful. So thank you so much. And um, yeah, for people that want to follow along. um, So my book is called There I Am, The Journey from Hopelessness to Healing. And um, you can get it anywhere books are sold. If you're interested in the audiobook, I do get to read it. And um, if you're also interested in just getting a taste of it, you can download the first chapter for free on my website, which is just Ruthie Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y.com. And if you're interested in following along on like a day in, day out basis, I use Instagram, which is just at Ruthie Lindsay and Facebook, which is Ruthie Lindsay Speaker. And I also have a, um, a mailing list, um, and that I email us that I send out, um, usually twice a month, sometimes just once a month, um, the things that I'm learning. And I also have a book club that if you're interested in being a part of a book club with the book, there's all kinds of very thought provoking, very expansive, I think, you know, 
questions that can be of service to the collective that are kind of pulled out from the book. And so there's all kinds of stuff for the book club online and all of that is for free. So I'd be so honored to have y'all follow along and reach out. I'd love to learn about y'all. So that would be such a sweet gift to me. Well, thank you so much. And I can't speak highly enough about the book. I loved it. It was like literally one of those... Like I laughed out loud. I (laughs) sobbed. Like, I mean, I'm talking, I had to put your book down multiple Mm -hmm. times because I was just like my gut, my soul was leaking. Um, So I'm just so glad it's out there in the world. And yeah, I'm so excited to learn about your new project. So I'm definitely following along with what you're up to and we'll talk soon. Can I share one other thing? Yes. I'm actually really excited about this and I almost forgot to tell y'all. Um, I'm starting coaching. Oh, I'm going to yes, be doing it in a few weeks. And I'm actually really, I've been receiving coaching for years. And I've been doing it just not in a formal way for, I mean, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, but I'm really, really excited to be just putting this new offering out there. So yeah, I'll be announcing that in the next two weeks or so, maybe around the time that this comes out. So be paying attention to that. And I would just be so excited to work with y'all. So good. You're going to be such a good coach. You're already doing it, like you said. So congrats, girl. Thank you, sister. Talk to you soon. Isn't Ruthie Lindsay such a gem? I adore her and I cannot emphasize enough how jealous I am of her Southern accent. Like, how did I grow up in Texas and not get a Southern accent? It, it just, it just feels wrong. But anyways, Ruthie, I adore you. I think one of the pieces of wisdom that stands out to me so much from our chat together and from her book is when she says, just because you know a story by heart doesn't mean it's true. Something about that just hits me in the gut because it's true. What are the narratives? What are the thoughts? What are the beliefs in your life that feel so true because they're so familiar and comfortable? And what if you could maybe sit with them and invite God into that space and say, God, is this true? Is this true? What is true here? I think there's such beauty and healing and giving ourselves and each other space to really ask, huh, what do I believe and why? So I hope that sets you up for some time just processing, maybe journaling, chatting with friends, and I cannot wait until next time. All right. Bye for now.